and welcome to another OU Law School podcast. This episode is a bit different. We sat down for a short talk with Professor Simon Lee and we talked about the latest Supreme Court decision on the parliamentary prerogation. He has some interesting insights to share with us on the substance and style of the decision and we talk a little bit on judgment writing and building consensus within a court. I think you will enjoy this one. Simon is a long time student of UK courts and has a lot of experience to share. Once again, I would like to remind you of our upcoming celebration of the 50 years of the OU. We have something special planned that will start in the next couple of weeks. So watch this space. Hello, so we're discussing here with Simon Lee, who's a professor at the OU University Law School. And uh, we're going to discuss about an interesting thing that happened yesterday, which was the Supreme Court decision. Um, everybody knows about it so far. Um, if you don't,
high on a bench. She, she wasn't playing black dress. Yes, and she was on the same level as the council in, in terms of <laughs> the yes. landscape of the court, even if she's at a higher level than all of us in her understanding of the law. So yes. the first thing is, it's a massive constitutional event in very simple and compelling language. The second thing is, you can read all 73 paragraphs, and there isn't one mention of one of the most famous phrases you would expect to be in there, the rule of law. Mm -hmm. So in Miller 1, and the run-up to it, everybody was talking about Dicey and the rule of law. Tom Bingham, probably the outstanding judge of the post-war era, even wrote a book called The Rule of Law. It's a big thing for judges to talk about it. Yeah. So how come it didn't feature? When Gina Miller came out of the court, she immediately said it was a victory for the rule of law. But that's not in the judgment. So why not? I think it goes back to the previous point, which is that phrase has become used so glibly by politicians and others that I think the court must have made a conscious decision not to invoke it, but to break down what it means to something more specific and easier to understand. Which is my third point, which is, she said, there were two big principles, parliamentary sovereignty, which we've heard about endlessly, but the second one was parliamentary accountability. Now, that's a slightly odd phrase, if it's such a great principle. I'm not sure that we shouldn't have heard it before. Uh, and she could point to one example of it being used, which was uh, the next point, that she cited Lord Carnworth, one of the people who was sitting with her, for using that phrase in the first Miller case. Mm -hmm. What she didn't tell us is that he was dissenting. Yeah. He was one of the three who disagreed with her and the others in the majority of eight. Now, the reason he disagreed is something she also understandably glossed over, yes. which is that if you cast your mind back to all that argument about Article 50 and uh, when the Prime Minister triggers a notification of withdrawal, uh, David Panic, who was the lawyer for Gina Miller in both cases, he said, using that metaphor, when the Prime Minister pulls the trigger, the bullet will take away people's human rights. And that was very powerful as, as an image. But Lord Carnworth, dissenting, said, it's powerful, but it's fallacious. It's not a good analogy. Because when you fire a bullet, it doesn't take two years to reach its target. And there aren't people rushing around trying to stop it. So I thought that was fascinating. And also, it reminds us that the Miller case was argued on the assumption that once Article 50 was invoked, it couldn't be revoked. Because we now know, because of a Court of Justice, the European Union case, that that was wrong. It can be. So I would like to see some discussion of how, to my mind, this is a better judgment than Miller 1, although I'm not disagreeing with either particularly. Right. But, but it connects, and it's fascinating. The, the fifth thing that, that our head of law school, Paul Catley, pointed out straight away yesterday is that despite the fact that in, in our academic life everybody's writing blogs and articles and wanting them to be cited in court, the court didn't cite any academic who's alive. They did cite the late Sir William Wade in a textbook. But there was nothing of this contemporary running around, which, which we participate in ourselves, yes. making a difference. I mean, it might have done subtly because counsel pick up those arguments. But uh, the only thing... Uh, they referred to was Wade's book on administrative law. Uh, I reviewed that in, in the mid-1980s, 
and I put, trying to mimic Lord Denning's short sentences, I put, Wade likes judges, judges like Wade, Wade and, and, and that's more or less all you need to know. This was a very traditional citation of a very traditional academic who loves judges. So I think we need to take stock of that as to uh, how do we make a difference, how do we influence uh, the court. The sixth point I want to make is that, uh, again, going back to the 1980s, I wrote a book called Judging Judges. One of the things I did was to say the political left uh, really then paid homage to uh, John Griffith's The Politics of the Judiciary, a book which effectively says that judges all come from the same kind of background. They're conservative with a small c and probably with a big c. They all think in the same way. They're right wing. And I said that's just ridiculous because we know that in, in the cases like uh, the Gillick case um, uh, of access of teenagers to contraception without parental consent, Mrs. Gillick lost the first instance. She won 3 0 in the Court of Appeal and she lost 3 2 in the House of Lords. So she lost overall, but she got more of the judges agreeing with her than disagreeing with her. And so the judges don't all think alike. They might all be from a particular background, but they, that doesn't mean that you're going to agree. So I've been arguing that for a long time, and therefore I found it quite emotional that I eventually got home last night and saw <laughs> on the news that the Labour Party conference of all places, people gave the judges a standing ovation <laughs> when, admittedly, Jeremy Corbyn was, was re relaying the result, but they were clearly standing up to applaud the judges. And only a few decades ago, they would have savaged the judges as part of some kind of right-wing conspiracy. So times do move. And the final thing I want to point out, the seventh point, is the seventh paragraph of the judgment, which everybody seems to have glossed over. But this is the point where Lady Hale's giving a very straightforward, methodical account of what happened. And she says, as everyone knows, a referendum was held in 2016. The majority of those voting voted to leave the European Union. Then she says, technically, the result was not legally binding, but the government had pledged to honour the result, and it has since been treated as politically and democratically binding. Successive governments and parliament have acted on that basis. Now, today, we've heard a lot in the news and in parliament of people saying that the Supreme Court is right, and what is the government going to do? But many of those people are the same people who actually want to reverse the results of the referendum. They don't seem to have noticed that she has got this curious position that technically the result was not legally binding, but politically, and she says democratically, it is. So in other words, what Boris Johnson could be saying at the dispatch box now as you and I are talking, but probably isn't because he probably hasn't yeah. read it, he could be saying, do you all agree with the Supreme Court? And the opposition benches bay, yes, we do. You know, we love the Supreme Court. Well, in that case, do you accept that the referendum result is politically and democratically binding, in, in which case, from his point of view, not mine, but from his yeah. point of view, let's wrap this up and, and leave. So I'm always interested in reading for myself, and I think this should be true of all law students at least, and I know it's true of you, we want to read the judgment. And because of the particular circumstances, we were able to read it as it was unfolding. And therefore, I took note of a few of these points. But then when I came out into the wider world, they weren't being mentioned. And 
what happens is, even with the, the, the simplest judgment, it's pared down in the media to the bits the media want to relay. Yes. And we forget some of these other points. So th th there may well be an argument here that politically and democratically binding is some kind of new doctrine that's only obiter and is a bit strange. But it could be that it might be a breakthrough moment for the government, even while it's being absolutely thrashed right left yes. and centre in the courts and in the media. So I would urge students of the law, in the broadest sense, anybody in the public uh, who wants to engage with the law, to read this judgment for themselves and to see it. You can both read it as a transcript and see it on the UK Supreme Court website. And then to argue about it in, if possible, in the manner of, in which Lady Hale did, with respect uh, and uh, I think a lightness of touch that she brought to proceedings in contrast to what often happens in the political domain. And, and to sum up, I wrote earlier in the summer that there isn't this binary law or politics. They are both necessary for a flourishing democracy. And I think we're seeing that played out superbly in this judgment. Well, I agree. I mean, this, this is a judgment exactly of the moment. Um, so, for instance, one of the things that I was struck by was, yes, the unanimity. Lady Hale must have worked hard at that unanimity. Mm. Um, but it was also a, a question popped up in my head whether if it wasn't for a month from now that Brexit happened, whether we would have this unanimity and whether we would have uh, the result that we have in the sense that they could have just said, yes, it's justiciable, yes, it's against the law, but we can offer no remedy, so it's up to Parliament, until mm. Parliament. Yes. And if there were more than 30 days until the actual leave date, they might have just done that. Mm. Um, so this is, partly it is the time pressure that's working with them that got to this 11 I think those are, are good points to bear in mind, but even so, there's a huge temptation as a judge, uh, which I suppose you and, you, you and I were judges, we might feel this, which is, yeah, but I don't actually agree with <laughs> that line, yeah. uh, or I don't really agree with the general thrust. And so she must have used quite a bit of clout <laughs> and, and powers of persuasion to get them to agree to let go some of their precious points uh, and that may dictate the style of the judgment as well yes. because if you stick to a sequence of facts mm -hmm. uh, and if you avoid impugning the motives of, of people then it might be easier to take some justices with you yep. uh, and rather than go into uh, who misled whom and so on to, to put it in the way that she did may have been necessary to, to create that unanimity. Uh, so, I mean, to give a parallel back to the American Supreme Court, uh, ordering desegregation in the American South in the 1950s is not as easy as it sounds now. And some of the justices were worried. So, uh, they were worried about uh, opposition to the court's judgments and violence and so on. So, uh, one of the issues was should the and they had to come back a year later on this. Yes. 
should it be forthwith, straight away, or should it be they eventually came up with the formula or deliberate speed, which actually seems to mean pretty slowly in, in their case. Uh, so there are all those kinds of tensions that must have been going on. And so you can see in your own life, say us as a law school, we might not agree on exactly what should be in this course or that uh, research proposal or this the dynamic and sometimes let something go that we wouldn't write as an individual. And maybe if we say, well, I wouldn't do that, I would have stood up, I'd have been the one who made it 10-1. Then the answer might be, well, maybe you wouldn't be a very collegial kind of a judge. Yeah. Uh, maybe you wouldn't get appointed because of that. Or maybe you just don't know because you haven't been in that position with the human dimension of being in the court and listening so, uh, perhaps a parallel I can give, I used to, to work in Northern Ireland during the Troubles and the peace process. And one of the amazing things was when Senator George Mitchell acted as a kind of mediator or broker, and he came out on the steps of Stormont, and, and they, they had a deal. And I thought, you know, some of those politicians coming out must have agreed with him in the room. Right. And when they came out and they saw the cameras and they realised they were going to say something which their supporters wouldn't like, because everybody had to move a bit, Maybe you know their knees began to wobble, um, but that might be just that we might, or I might feel like that, and therefore I wouldn't be a good judge or a good politician. There's a great tendency to project and, and to say it goes back to this point of saying the judges are all right wing or whatever, right. or all liberal now. <laughs> but that, what, what we really mean is, if I were a judge, I would be influenced by my political worldviews. But that that's probably why I'm not a judge. Yes, but that goes back to the art and. It's interesting you say that. I think you're right, yes. But it, it does read to me as if it was written by two people. Okay. Uh, and it's actually, if you look at the judgment, it will say that it's delivered by Lady Hale and the Deputy President, Lord Reed, who is um, her successor, who's going to take over as President. Mm -hmm. That's the formula that they have when giving a judgment to the court. But I think in this case, it probably is the reality as well, because Lord Reed was one of the dissenters in the first Miller case generally be seen as more small c conservative on these matters than Lady Hale, who would be seen as small l liberal. Or to put it another way, he'd be seen as more restrained and she'd be seen as more interventionist. But I think that there are some references to cases he was in and, and some where she was in the majority. And I could imagine that the, the, the first thing to do for her would have been to secure the agreement of her deputy and successor, although that's not the form in which they do it, you know, in, in the room they go around starting with uh, the most junior, um, but I think in practice it would have been important to get him onto the side that she she wanted. Yeah. But, you know, we'll, we'll never know exactly uh, how, how that works, but it is interesting, I, I agree with you, it wasn't that each of the 11 contributed six or seven yeah, paragraphs, it does flow, uh, but I think it is well, it's a masterpiece of clear writing, and it's a model that I think is, is one of the byproducts and benefits of a legal education that 
you see these examples in our, in our daily work, we see these examples of something beautifully written and something which achieves its purpose, even if you might disagree with it. Yes. Uh, I think that is a very important part of understanding, uh, and I don't mean this in a dismissive way, but rhetoric, the power of language and how it's put. And I, I do feel that she was at her finest in the actual oral and visual delivery. Uh, that is the kind of image which I think has transformed people's uh, understanding or appreciation of the cause. All right. Well, thank you very much for this short talk. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure we could discuss the judgment and courts to our heart's content, uh, but life is not one. Uh, and this judgment will be I think for many years to come. Yes, thank you very much. It's been a good, from my point of view, a good conversation. And at the very beginning of her judgment, she says, I think it, it's a one off in this mm -hmm. case. Now, judges always say something like, this is confined <laughs> to its facts or something yeah. like that. Uh, but uh, it, it may be a one off in exactly the, the, the sense that you gave, that it was coming up to a deadline and one of the most important constitutional steps any state could ever make. Yeah. But I don't think it's a one-off in terms of law and politics coming together and making important decisions around our democracy. It, it, they obviously didn't think it was one-off because they wouldn't have written more, uh, paragraph 15. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, talks about future prerogation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They, 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 they probably could imagine uh, we're back here in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Good, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast and I hope you will come back for the next one. As ever, you can find out more about us on the Law School's website. Don't forget about our celebration of the OU's 50th birthday coming in the next few weeks. The music in the background is Dirty Mac by Endless Love. Take care and hope to see you again.